Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Since the onset of the novel coronavirus, award-winning data journalist Rukmini has investigated the virus's spread in India like few other people have. Twice a week since March, she's been recording her thoughts on the pandemic and a short mini-podcast called The Moving Curve. In 100, so far, bite-sized episodes, Rukmini has helped educate Indians and their political leaders about this unprecedented public health crisis straight from her home studio, Rukmini joins me via Zoom from Chennai today, and I am very pleased to welcome her back to the podcast to talk about her work. Rukmini, good to see you again. Thank you for having me again. It feels like another lifetime ago when we were talking, you know, in the innocent times when it was just elections. (laughs) That's right. And, you know, uh, a lot has happened between now and then, and you have been very, very busy. Let me ask you about this thing which has been occupying um, a lot of your time. You know, as I mentioned, since March, at least twice a week, you have been releasing these very sort of data-packed but short podcasts, what you call mini-casts, I believe, tackling sort of a different question each episode about the coronavirus pandemic. Now, you have been a data journalist for some time, beginning in print, writing for online publications. What inspired you to kind of make the jump and sort of ply your trade now in this new audio form as a mini podcast? So I've always liked um, audio as a medium. I listened to a lot of podcasts and I felt like I always wanted to do one. But I think it's one of those things that I, um, I don't know if I, if I overthought it a lot or I just thought about it a lot. Um, uh, the good thing about, well, it's hard to say that there was a good thing about the pandemic, but the, the, the thing about that moment of sort of suspended animation that we were all in is that because we weren't all meeting each other and getting sort of live feedback from each other, I felt sort of courageous enough to put this out there without really worrying very hard about um, the logistics or the response to it. it I felt like I was, um, you know, out on some outpost on a lighthouse somewhere, <laughs> beaming out these messages and, you know, maybe some people um, marooned at sea were listening to them. So, um, I, you know, I don't have any equipment. I, I never knew how I would go about doing a podcast. I don't have any um, experience of it at all. But um, a, a very good friend of mine who lives in Chennai, Anand Krishnamurti, is a sort of, is a very well-known um, audio engineer here in uh, Tamil Nadu. And, you know, he's we've often talked about sound. And um, he said, you know what, just record it on your phone. It doesn't matter. Just send it to me. I'll, I'll edit it and send it back to you. Um, so... Yeah, I just didn't overthink it too much and just started putting out what I felt was um, what I was doing in my mind anyway, which was sort of um, at night um, trying to distill all that we had learned in the day because there was so much we were learning all through the day. And um, 
it it felt like it needed a moment of quiet at night to figure it all out i just decided to figure it out aloud and um, without overthinking it too much just put it out there so it's it's really small it has a very small um, it doesn't have grand samasha numbers <laughs> but um, uh, i i continue not to overthink it and not to look at uh, it's a luxury that i don't have to look at the numbers you know it's not one of my paid writing jobs where it matters so uh, it's very freeing and um, uh it's great to try to try something that i've always wanted to it's great to be able to dive into it without worrying worrying too much about the uh outcome i want to get into the data now but before we do that as a kind of soft transition can you just kind of paint us a very broad picture at the kind of 30,000 foot level of where covid-19 stands in india today we're recording on october 28 2020 how would you kind of characterize rukmini the state of the pandemic as it were so just sort of minutes before we started recording india hit uh, 8 million laboratory confirmed cases in all um and over 120000 deaths so that's this that's this major milestone that india has hit today this places india um second in terms of cases to the us so that's about a million or so cases behind the us and around 2 and a half million cases ahead of the uh, country with the next highest cases which is brazil but in terms of total deaths india lags significantly dis- behind even in terms of um absolute cases absolute numbers um india has uh, Uh, fewer deaths than brazil even though it has 2 and 1/2 million more cases and proportionate to its population of course uh, things are uh, that's where things uh, break down a little bit so india has for example 87 cases per million people so far versus 27000 per million in the us for instance and uh, you know sort of similar ranking in the world in terms of mortality but um, you know uh, talking about numbers in terms of uh, proportion to the population is important and we could you know talk about that in a bit about how how much that has been an element of uh, the polarization around numbers both in the us and india uh, but even if we just talk about absolute numbers for a minute which is the sort of thing that most people understand uh, best and relate to most easily just over a month ago things were truly scary in india because when you reach a point where you you are approaching 100000 new cases every day which is where india was um no signs of any flattening at all uh it was really looking quite terrifying and um there were individual cities that were seeing over 4000 new cases a day as much as some countries in the world there were stories emerging about um, you know the oxygen supply running out and needing needing imports for that and suddenly now a month later we find ourselves right now in the midst of what seems like a turnaround so india is now in the fifth week of what is a clear decline in cases uh, daily new cases peaked around the second or third week of september because we didn't know that was the peak then it just seemed like you know and a continuous escalation but it now appears to have been at least a peak if not the peak and every subsequent week has been uh, there's been a decline so the weekly average of new cases is now down to late july levels and um, where we stand in comparison to the world is um, france is now you know since it's on its 
very worrying upward trajectory the weekly average of cases in france would now be sort of equal to where india is approaching and most major states are following this um trajectory um the western state of maharashtra which has consistently had the highest number of cases you know which was comparable to the worst countries in the world right until now has gone from 20000 new cases per day in mid september down to 5 or 6000 new cases right now so the peak of this wave at least does seem to have passed uh but some states and cities are in the midst of their second or even third waves in the case of delhi for example and large swathes of the population remain susceptible uh for reasons that we could again discuss in a little while so um uh, i don't think any right thinking person despite the government having recently put out what it calls a super model that says that the peak has passed and you know active cases will now continuously decline i don't think most experts uh, buy that um but this is where india stands right now and you know it's particularly notable because it's so much at odds with what is happening in most of the western world but uh, we seem to be um on this on the sort of declining part of this wave right now I mean uh speaking of scary if you'd like to be truly frightened please join us here in the United States where uh we are in our third wave although some people say you know it's basically just an extension of the first wave uh let let me pick up on something that you referenced in your comments earlier according to India's health ministry India's COVID-19 case fatality rate or CFR is at its lowest level I believe since late March March 22nd it's about 1.5%. Now, if you look back throughout this crisis, various government officials at all levels have pointed to this low fatality rate as evidence that in fact India has done an excellent job managing the crisis. And so I guess the question to you is is India's fatality rate unusually low and if so do we have a good sense of why? So um you know the answer to this question in some ways embodies a lot of uh, India's response to the crisis as well as the current state of scholarship uh, around it so yes india's case fatality rate is low um and since the case fatality rate is the number of recorded fatalities proportional to lab confirmed cases and uh, you know it's it's um, uh, imaginable and probable that in india lab confirmed cases uh, trail significant significantly behind what the total number of infections would be even if we, even if that is a sort of um, is to crude an indicator the uh, infection fatality rate that's derived from sero surveys that we we'll we could talk about in a bit that too is low so there's no there's no two ways about that it is a low number in india it's been declining and it's you know fallen further um there have been multiple small bits of research that show that explain part of it but i don't think it's been fully explained and in some ways what we've been left with so one of the things one of the explanations that's used is um uh youth because india's population is so much younger than uh many of the western countries that and you know survival rates are so much better for younger people uh that this could be one of the explanations it's not a full explanation um some research for example has shown you know there was a good paper recently looking at two states alone at andhra pradesh and tamil nadu by um 
uh, Raman and Lakshmi Narayan and a few others from Princeton, which shows that the um, that the survival rates for those over 85 in India is in fact uh, unusually high. So, uh, you know, this it's not as simple as India's young and the young survive better. And that's, there's very many um, disparate bits of this puzzle. But um, youth is not a full explanation. Um, and I think what ends up happening is what we're left with is some form of Indian exceptionalism, uh, some uh, element of saying that, uh, and you know, this is something that you could answer whichever way you want to, right? So uh, I've seen a number of people uh, uh, attributing this to government policy. Now, the problem with that is that it's hard to argue that uh, India's response, even if we want to say that it was very good in parts, and that's debatable, uh, or, or in places, it's hard to say that its uh, response was better than South Korea, for example, or Germany, for example. So, uh, uh, the, you know, good policy or good governance is not going to be a full explanation either. Um, there's a number of um, uh, dubious explanations, uh, which are sort of correlational analyses, which each of them had their... Uh, time in the sun or time in the headlines um, and hopefully they're dying out. They, they still appear as news headlines. We have one even just yesterday or today which proposes um, uh, you know, poor hygiene and sort of uh, uh, an elevated immune response is one of the explanations. That's not, that's not it either. So there is something going on and I don't believe it's fully explained. Um, but uh, Yes, um, India's mortality has been uh, uh, particularly low. And once again, this is not something that um, under-reporting or poor reporting uh, explains away fully. Uh, India does have a problem with um, uh, death statistics. You know, it doesn't have full death registration just as it doesn't have full birth registration. And it's possible that a pandemic would have overwhelmed administrative systems further. But uh, I don't think we're any longer in a situation where we can argue that, you know, um, uh, hundreds or thousands or millions are dying unnoticed. That's 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 not India anymore. So uh, it's a puzzle with a few explained parts, but not uh, completely explained yet. So, you know, uh, some scholars affiliated with the Center for Policy Research, uh, who I think you and I both know, published a paper earlier this year arguing that once you take India's age distribution into account and you calculate age-adjusted fatality rates, India's performance loses some of its luster. In other words, as you just said, India has gotten lucky because it is such a young population, and that if you actually look at the older end of the population distribution, those people experience worse outcomes. But that's not what you're saying. You're saying actually there is still an unexplained puzzle over there because people in their 80s say still have lower fatality rates than in in other countries. Is that, uh, just to clarify, is that what you're saying? Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is also part of something that I experienced while um, doing the podcast, which is that uh, in all parts of, um, in understanding any part of the world, I think you always, uh, any part of, the way the world works, you always struggle with conflicting pieces of um, research. But this is particularly so now because it's coming so fast and so sort of concentrated. So uh, there have been not just the CPR paper, but another one as well, which did show that age-adjusted age fatality rates um, were not unusual in India. In fact, um, 
some of the um, outcomes for younger for younger populations were actually worse than they um, than should have been anticipated than you know should have been expected but um, as i mentioned there's the uh, tamil nadu and andhra pradesh paper which is very rigorous and you know um, uh, has has the largest contact tracing data set of any academic research so far which um, uh, finds this particular anomaly among people uh, age 85 and above so uh, in the us for example um, fatalities sort of plateau around 65 and then worsen again significantly again in india they just um, uh, it just tapers off right then after that in one of the explanation you know the re- the leading virologist uh, gagandeep kang who i spoke to around this dr gagandeep kang she mentioned that um, one of the possibilities was that surviving until 85 is so unusual in india that it's possible that there's a sort of survivor effect that if you made it that far um you likely don't have the comorbidities that would have otherwise put you at risk so there's a, there's a lot more research that needs to be done so you know as we're sitting here recording today the state of bihar is going to the polls in its first mm-hmm. phase uh, i'm sure you've seen several stories have come out in recent days pointing to the fact that bihar has an unusually low test positivity rate for covid as well as a fatality rate that is below the indian average and you know just prima facie i mean we know this is one of the poorest states in the union where public health care um has deep structural problems so this mm-hmm. is somewhat counterintuitive do we have a reasonable explanation for why this might be the case so um you know one of the painful parts and i know i can see this happening in the us as well but one of the painful parts of um engaging with uh, covid and covid numbers right now is just how politically polarized all of the uh, analysis and interpretation has got so uh, you'll see that um, not just for bihar but uh, for other sort of um, other poor states as well and i think you know the answer actually does lie in the uh, somewhere between the two sides it just needs more unbiased um, uh, observation and analysis so uh, you know let's be clear that bihar's numbers are exceptional um especially for uh, especially in terms of fatality because once again this is something that at the beginning of the pandemic it had seemed that these were numbers that would be suppressed and you know but i think that's become quite clear now that there aren't mass fatalities happening completely unnoticed or hidden away that that's not the case um the positivity rate is a bit um bit more complicated uh so one of the things that india has been doing uh, since june the indian government has allowed states to conduct rapid antigen tests as well these two uh, look for viral dna so they are not uh, viral genetic material so they are not sort of um, antibody blood tests but they are um, they're quicker they're cheaper but they are also less sensitive and so produce much more false negatives um some indian states have uh, significantly ramped up their antigen testing as a share of total testing and what this means is then that your positivity rate uh declines it just means that your denominator goes up uh, significantly while your numerator uh, grows very slowly because of the high false negativity rate bihar is one of the states that's conducting a lot of antigen tests again that's not a full explanation delhi is conducting a lot of antigen tests as well and it has you know uh, it's both its test positivity rate and the number of cases coming up every day are growing fast so again that's not a full explanation there's a there's a few things that could be happening in bihar 
One is that it's an extremely rural state. It's 88% rural. Um, and the, um, the parts of the country, the parts of India that have been hit hardest so far are the most urbanized with the most uh, dense population. So it's imaginable that um, uh, that what's happened so far, this first wave or peak that we've seen in, in India has been the most densely populated cities being hit first. And um, either it's likely that we're going to see waves as it sweeps through the rest of the country or in a sort of more dissipated manner. That's how it's going to spread in the rest of the country. So I don't think that there's reason to assume that Bihar's uh, current situation is the way it's going to be. It, it's likely that it'll get there later. Um, th there's a pretty good correlation between levels of urbanization and um, uh, prevalence of uh, the infection so far. Um, uh, it's, you know, the cold months, the winter months are anyway, uh, uh, bring in a lot of seasonal infection. So that's something that Bihar is going to need to watch out for. There's the festival season, there's huge election rallies going on right now. So I think uh, the truth sort of lies in between. It's not true that these are false numbers or uh, Bihar is hiding something. Yes, there's something unusual going on, but to, but to assume that this is because the state is doing a great job or because um, there's something in, in Bihari immune uh, response, uh, that sort of exceptionalism doesn't work there either. So, uh, Rukmini, I feel like we're hearing a lot about various sero surveys being done mm -hmm. in cities and states across the country. Now, as non-scientists, most of us, in fact, let me be more specific, I do not have a good grasp of what sero survey actually is and what it's doing. So what are they uh, in kind of layperson's terms? And what do you think they have taught us about the trajectory of the coronavirus to date? So seroservies as they are being done in India are essentially um, um, sample surveys in which um, a representative uh, sample of the population uh, is, uh, undergoes a blood test to test for antibodies to the virus. So what it would mean is whether, um, you know, if it has a yes-no sort of response, it would say whether you have been exposed to the virus or not. Because we know by now that, you know, 80% or more or less somewhere there of infections, um, of COVID infections are asymptomatic, this kind of exposure becomes important to understand because a large number of people might have been infected without ever having realized it. Um, so the Indian government has conducted a, a few of these sero surveys themselves, and a couple of city administrations and states are conducting them too. Um, I think the most insightful one came from uh, Mumbai, which showed not just a high level of sero prevalence, which is, you know, in the range of over twenty percent in both uh, Mumbai and Pune. What that means is that it showed that one in five people in the city, roughly, had already been um, exposed to the virus. Um, in Mumbai, in particular, what they were able to show is the huge difference in seroprevalence between um, slums and non-slum areas. And I think that gave an important direction for um, uh, public health professionals to focus on, because it immediately became apparent that focusing on um, shared bathrooms um, shared sources of water in high-density, uh, cramped urban living settings were, was an immediate priority area. Um, uh, another thing that sero surveys have shown, interestingly, is that uh, subsequent rounds of sero surveys are actually showing a decline in 
uh, seroprevalence. So this is something that that was uh, initially um, frightening to read because it uh, it seemed to indicate that uh, we could lose our immune response and that means we would be you know susceptible to reinfection. But um, essentially, that is how uh, any virus um, moves through the population. Over time, you, you know, the, uh, uh, the, share, the number of antibodies in your blood does start decreasing. And antibodies alone are not what cause an immune response or give you immunity. So that's what Mumbai and Delhi have shown so far. The, um, uh, the seroprevalence uh, has decreased in both of those cities. Uh, what should have been the most insightful and useful Seru survey was actually the national seru survey that ended up having a few problems in it um, and you know is not being conducted at the speed and periodicity that's needed um, that's important because um, for example just the question that you asked me just before is about Bihar the the best way to answer it would be through a seru survey and Bihar seems to have conducted one but not released the information um, uh, the, the Indian Seru Survey would have sampled Bihar as well. So what we really need more Seru Surveys of now are um, from uh, smaller cities and from rural areas because we really have much less idea of what's going on there. And so could I just interject here? With, so just, again, yeah. this is kind of COVID-19 for dummies. So if Seru prevalence in a place like Mumbai shows that one in five, 20% of the Mumbai population has been exposed to the virus, wouldn't that then imply that, in fact, India's case fatality rate is even more exceptional than what we might think based on lab-confirmed tests? Yes, that's actually exactly what the Seru surveys did show, because what they what you can produce from that is called the derived IFR, the infection fatality rate, rather than the case fatality rate. So that's confirmed fatalities proportionate to the real number of infections. And that across the world, that produces a much lower number than the case fatality rate, as that did in India as well. But the initial Indian estimates were even lower than what you would have expected given uh, global comparisons. And that, you know, with the case fatality rate, you can still imagine that what What's partly driving it is um, uh, reporting issues, but with infection fatality rate, that's it. That that's what the number is. So that's in fact the number that did make it clear that something unusual was going on in India. Though I have to say, in parts of uh, uh, the country, for example, in um, uh, in parts of big cities, the infection fatality rate is not that different from what it is in the rest of the world. But uh, the overall all India one. Um, or in non-slum areas, yes, that is that is unusual. So I, I want to sort of take us back in time um, to one of the most vexing questions I think that has um, uh, we have to grapple with, which is the the, the stringent lockdown that was imposed in March. Uh, in September, I believe you published a column in Mint asking the basic question: Why has India emerged as a global epicenter of the pandemic? given that it instituted one of the most stringent lockdowns in the world, right? I think it's, social scientists have kind of validated that. Um, I realize that it is extremely difficult to name all of the factors responsible for this discrepancy. But if you could sort of boil it down to its essence, how would you explain the coexistence of these two things? Really serious nationwide early lockdown on the one hand, and a release of the lockdown and just a complete explosion in the number of cases. So I think uh, one of the you know important things is the the distinction between um, between fact and between 
propaganda in a sense of what the government needed the lockdown to to be um if if the government had been fairly clear that um what the lockdown is was an opportunity for administrative systems and healthcare systems to gear up for for a coming escalation which is essentially what a lockdown is uh then you know our measure of whether it was a success or a failure would have changed accordingly but that's not that's not what the what the government did at least initially there was a lot of messaging around lockdowns being the thing that was going to um protect india from the pandemic you know in in his initial announcement of the first national lockdown uh prime minister modi said you know these 21 days are the ones that can um uh, uh, that are going to make all the difference that are going to advise you know you'll be set back generation so it did seem like let's all come together get this lockdown done and then we're going to you know uh, be safe from it um and um i i do want to say that um you know i have a lot of criticisms of modi there's a lot of criticisms of the government handling to be made but apart from that uh apart from that example i just gave you i don't have a lot of criticism of um, modi's um uh, messaging around the uh, pandemic in in uh, specifically but i you know i have criticism of other members of the government for sure vk paul who uh, heads the government's covid task force on the 24th of april uh, showed a slide that uh, no indian journalist is ever going to forget because yeah, this, uh, this is the slide that will live in infamy <laughs> correct the nose dive the sort of nose dive that no one has uh, seen for any sort of graph which is the number of cases uh, hitting zero by by the 16th of may and you know um, uh, multiple members of uh, government panels said that the lockdown was the thing that was going to make cases hit zero the icmr's director director general balram bhargav also said at a press conference that um, uh the the lockdown was very it was very done, done very scientifically and because of it we've been able to um, uh, avoid large numbers of cases and deaths so uh you know to expect a lockdown to make a country's cases disappear is a problem um and the problem was around the uh, you know the messaging around it so so that's one of the reasons why why i don't think that the lockdown help because lockdowns don't do that what they do is sort of push the way further and help you um develop systems for that um whether uh, whether states were able to develop these put in place these systems it really varied with state capacity from one to the other so i was talking a couple of weeks ago to um to a, to an ias officer who heads tamil nadu's um, medical supplies procurement agency and tamil nadu has been uh, the exception in the country it's not used any rapid antigen tests at all it's only used the gold standard rt pcr test and um, you know when i was talking to uh, uh, this dr uma umanadu heads it i was telling him well you know or not all states are in your position you're you're in a um, uh, it's a better off uh, more developed state so it can do this and he said you know yes i'm not comparing myself to uttar pradesh but the other reasonably well off states this is what the lockdown was for the lockdown was for you to be able to develop the laboratory capacity to not have to rely on um, you know less reliable cheap antigen tests so uh but not all states used 
use the lockdown um, to that extent. The the fact that uh, you know uh, beds were not increased in any sort of meaningful way, um, that we still have these problems with oxygen supply even now. Um, all of that points to the lockdown not having been used um, to bulk up. Um, capacity in the way that it needed to be done, which which brings me to the third point, which is that I don't think that many parts of the Indian state can increase capacity meaningfully um, very fast. The the lack of capacity and the sort of lack of capacity to build capacity is so um, is so deep that um, making you know making it seem as if honest intentions and great energy are going to produce. Uh, the radical changes that we needed then was was sort of sad and uh, disingenuous because we 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 are so far away from the capacity capacity that was needed to be able to pull that off. Um, and uh, one of the things that the government has been doing in sort of different governments in within India have been doing in subtle ways. Uh, they've been sort of trying to shift the burden slightly to individual responsibility. So there has been that question of you know the lockdowns advantages were sort of washed away when people started going uh, going out not distancing not wearing masks but um, in a country this poor um, with uh, social uh, security nets that uh, barely exist with no meaningful um, uh, stimulus at the you know uh, individual level so unlike any other country, I mean no no concept of a furlough or anything of that sort over here Individual responsibility uh, uh, is a pretty unfair thing to say, I think, because, you know, I don't think, uh, so look at me, for example, my life has barely changed since the lockdown, because um, since I have the luxury of not having to go out to work, um, and uh, my kids are not in school, so they're at home most of the time, I hardly go out at all still. So does that mean that I'm being responsible? I mean, that's not the case at all. And um, sure, there might be, you know, everybody, newspapers in India love to publish pictures of uh, overcrowding in markets before festivals. I mean, sure, there's that too. But um, the sheer force of economic compulsion in this country, which was seen in very, uh, illustrated in very um, clear terms when we saw this mass movement of people back home in the early days of the lockdown because they literally could not survive five days without uh, wage payments in the cities in which they live. I don't think, um, uh, I don't think the, the strength of that economic compulsion is uh, is now unknown to anyone. So uh, the individual responsibility argument really breaks down there for me. So, you know, Rukmini, just to kind of take you off COVID uh, on a tangent for a second, you know, one of the issues you wrote about pretty early on in this crisis was this sort of deferred health care that, you know, that wasn't occurring. So these were kind of prenatal visits. It could be cancer screenings. They could be immunizations. It could just be, you know, check-ins with your doctor. Obviously, they weren't happening because many people feared contracting COVID if they went to their doctor, if they went to the clinic, if they went to the hospital and so on. Uh, Sitting here in late October, do we have a sense of how significant these impacts are of non-COVID-related health stresses um, uh, because of the impact of COVID? So I'm just going to get to the first part of what you said before I get to that, which is that Part of it was um, people trying to put this off out of fear, but a big part of it was also 
people simply being unable to access healthcare. So, you know, all transport, all public transport was completely shut off sure. for nearly a month. So, uh, you know, and the reason, the place where that becomes very stark is when access to emergency services crashed as well. Why should there be fewer people showing up with, um, you know, strokes and heart attacks, even if you account for uh, reduced stress because people are were in at work less, um, the 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 reduction in uh, institutional deliveries, for example, the reduction in uh, access to emergency services, those are very uh, worrying indicators. Um, and you know, uh, the the Indian media was awash with stories of people uh, seeking care but being uh, unable to access it for non-COVID um, uh, uh, emergencies or non-COVID conditions. Um, we haven't been able we haven't uh, been able to capture the impact yet in terms of quantitative data but every doctor in this country will tell you um, what they're seeing in their opds now that opds are beginning to you know outpatient departments are beginning to restart which is that they are seeing all of their chronic uh, condition patients come to them in um, uh, far more advanced and uncontrolled forms of what they were experiencing before. Um, I was told this in very, um, you know, heartbreaking terms by a very senior doctor in uh, rural Maharashtra. His name is Dr. S.P. Kalantri and he's the medical superintendent of a teaching hospital in a very poor and deprived part of eastern Maharashtra. And he was saying how uh, heartbreaking it is for him to see um, uh, patients who he knows that if they had come to him a, a year or two, uh, sorry, a month or two ago, um, the quality of their lives, uh, you know, would have been so so different. Maybe even uh, how long they survive uh, just because of the of all that they missed in the in the months before that. And he says this is being echoed by uh, doctors all across the country. I do hear this. It's even just the scale of things, you know. The the diabetes, um, sugar, blood sugar readings that doctors were accustomed to seeing of people who's, uh, who, who were experiencing diabetes and the numbers have changed because it has been so uncontrolled in the last few months. And India had an enormous dialysis crisis as well. So there's a huge number of Indians who, who rely on daily dialysis um, uh, for their, uh, you know, malfunctioning kidneys. And there was a... Uh, an enormous disruption in dialysis, which, um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't need much um, to be able to say that this this is going to affect the uh, life expectancy and the uh, quality of life of a certain subset of Indians for sure. But uh, no, we don't yet have the empirical data. Uh, all of this is not stuff that's going to show up immediately as well. So. Um, the problem is that India doesn't have uh, good and quick um, overall mortality statistics. Um, but this is something, you know, we, we, we can't stop looking at it this year. We're going to need to look at it for the next few years to know all that all that happened through this year. You know, you mentioned the media, Rukmini, in your response just now. So uh, it's a good segue for me to ask you about something that's on my mind, which is, you know, as somebody who's a member of the media, but also maybe has some outside um, perspective, given that you're a kind of freelance journalist and you're in Chennai outside of the kind of major media bubbles of, you know, Delhi and Mumbai, how would you assess this kind of media coverage of the pandemic in India thus far? 
so any shortcomings are not for uh, for want of hard work um the kind of personal uh, risk that uh, a huge number of journalists have either chosen to in some cases and had to in many others uh, put themselves through is is not a story that i think is very well known outside of india because indian journalists are not very prone to um talking about their own uh, trials on the field but um uh, you know there's an enormous number of indian journalists who tested positive for coronavirus as well um so it, you know the problems don't really stem from uh, lack of coverage as seen journalists really fan out across the country even even during the lockdown and it when it was so hard to travel but um there's definitely been a problem uh, in terms of over reliance on um government explanations even in cases where it was clear that they were not full explanations so we we will see this even now in the last couple of days when this supermodel that the government uh, calls it that they put out that they're saying you know shows that the pandemic is on its way out over here um not enough speaking truth to power not enough uh, checking back with uh, outside experts uh on the government's line uh but again i have to say that because i uh, uh, follow the government's press conferences pretty clearly they are so opaque they take such few questions and give such little information in that um i i sympathize with journalists who are not able to get these responses from uh, from government either um and uh, one of the problems has been uh, that's really come out is that um indian journalists are not well trained on how to report on science so how to deal with uh, preprints with non peer reviewed research all of those are big issues that have come up now and i hope you know this is main newsrooms realize that they need to invest much more in this and just one sort of small tangential thing that's come up for me um i never uh, attach much importance to what the internet to the international media's uh, coverage of india you know it's not it's not their problem and so if i have a problem with it that's that's not their job necessarily it, it, that's fine but when the story did shift to india and india really became the global epicenter for a while i found the international coverage coverage really lacking there were a couple of sort of pre decided narratives and most of the journalism fit into that i also found it very frustrating to see that um uh you know indian experts were rarely relied upon and the same sort of uh, uh global experts whose names i had seen so many times were uh, uh, you know their names repeated a lot i also myself have found in my reporting and you know other journalists might not have so this might be just something i found but i found it so hard to get responses from uh non indian uh, scientists and experts as well who are pretty happy to speak to um the rest of the international media and i get, i get it when india wasn't the biggest story and i get that everyone has and continues to be super distracted by the us with good reason but um at least for that portion of you know august september uh, when india was absolutely uh, at the top of all of the, the sort of daily scoreboards it was a bit disappointing to see that i don't feel that global attention uh, moved in a focused way to india then you know uh, this issue on 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 kind of data and understanding data you know uh, when we first met many moons ago 
uh, I think it's fair to say that you were one of the early pioneers of the kind of data journalism movement in India, whether you want to uh, recognize that or not. Uh, mm -hmm. Undoubtedly, your tribe has grown in recent years. And, and, and I think in part learning from your and others uh, examples, if you look across um, the media, I think we could rattle off names of people who, who have really taken this on. But what I guess what I'm wondering is, has data journalism been integrated into newsrooms across India? Or do you think, you know, when it comes to the editors-in-chief and the media executives who make hiring and firing decisions that this is still sort of seen as like a niche enterprise, like it would be good to have, but we have lots of other priorities. So the niche has grown much bigger to the point that maybe it's not even a niche, it's a clear section, but it remains a section. And the newsroom integration part of it has not happened at all. That remains a sort of a PowerPoint presentation to make at uh, media strategy events without meaningfully actually integrating it. Um, and you'll see this, for example, even right now with the Bihar elections, you know, you can see in the coverage that uh, that there aren't data journalists and sort of field reporters working together on uh, news stories. That's not that's not happening. There isn't enough training given to field reporters to even be able to access um, uh, the data that they need to give their stories that much help. And I feel this particularly for non-English media who really would want to be able to use more numbers in their stories and really suffer from a lack of training in this respect. Um, uh, most big newsrooms now have uh, a data journalism team and you know that's great. And that's really a big change from from 10 years ago um uh, but making sure that it's something that feeds into all of the uh, publications journalism um it, it, that's something that still needs to happen and um uh, i think part of it is also about how data journalists are telling their stories so i do think that there needs to be an attempt to be a bit more accessible um, and, you know, something that I'm quite passionate about is that um, math is taught very uh, poorly in this country and is often uh, associated with, uh, with being smart when, when the problem often is that it's being taught so poorly that, it's, that that's what's preventing the person from understanding it. Um, and I, I encounter this a lot. There's a lot of immediate fear of numbers that you come across in people which has really become uh, which really stems from poor uh, teaching of math in schools so i i would really want uh, data journalism stories in india to not be producing that reaction of fear in people and um, you know working with journalists about how to make it more uh, accessible should really be an aim of data journalists as well so, Rukmini, just kind of coming to the end of our conversation here, um, without giving too much away about, you know, what you're thinking about for sort of future episodes of the podcast, I'm wondering if you could just dwell for a couple of minutes on what you think are some of your own biggest lingering or unanswered questions that you still have about the virus after, you know, months of, of pouring through uh, of, of data and studies and talking to people. Um what would the kind of two or three big questions be, you know, that float to the top of your mind? So the way I've approached all of the episodes so far is to try and ask a question and then build towards it to some sort of answer. Um, I feel what's going to happen in the next few episodes is me asking questions that I don't 
uh, find answers to because most of the key questions about the pandemic are very poorly understood and i think it might be time to say that they're really poorly understood so for example i haven't seen one single good explanation for why cases are declining in india now i there's no clear idea of why this point of time why this particular um a number um you would think that if we've been you know building towards a pandemic from march onwards and we finally hit some sort of peak which is now declining you'd think there'd be a whole range of convincing explanations for why this has happened i i can't see that, say that i've seen a single one at all so i mean especially I just I'm, sorry just to interject on that you know this was preceded by a spate of stories in the indian press and in the international press about how the spread had moved to rural areas we were seeing rising case numbers this was going to be more more geographically dispersed and so you would expect in fact the numbers to continue exactly and i think a big part of this is people often feel that they know why things are happening when they really don't there most of what is happening i have to say we don't know why it's happening we don't know why bihar's numbers are so low we don't know why pune a city you know near bombay had such high numbers it's since i come from pune i have um, you know uh, sincerely looked for one convincing article in the news why which which should explain why pune had 2000 plus cases every day and i haven't seen one at all um and i think people ascribe things to their pet um, theories when when there's no reason for that you know they'll ascribe something to kerala's numbers even right i mean why exactly kerala's numbers rose so high uh, and at that period i can't say i actually know why that happened and then how is it that those so- same explanations for why kerala was doing so well are sort of supposed to remain while we also try to make sense of why these numbers have got high i i can't say that uh, you know most of that makes sense to me so i think what's going to be happening in the next few episodes is a lot of me ending episodes with me saying so i i can't answer the question <laughs> My guest on the show today is the data journalist Rukmini. She is the host and creator of a twice-weekly podcast uh, on the coronavirus called The Moving Curve. Um, she's also a frequent contributor to many regular Indian publications, such as Mint and others, and we'll link to some of her most recent uh, stories uh, on the episode page. Rukmini, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like I learn so much, but I also leave with more questions that I want to ask you, and I know that um, you'll be tackling some of these in the in the months and the weeks to come on your podcast. So thank you for sparing a little bit of time for us and our listeners to walk us through the virus in India, and thanks for all that you do. Thanks so much for having me, Milan. Good luck. Grantamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com, India's fastest-growing podcasting-producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, grantamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Maya Krishna Rogers is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. Caesar's Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesar's rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.